If you're going to be punished, you deserve to know what you did wrong. Citizens, subordinates, even our children, everyone deserves to be shown the connection between behavior and consequence, crime and punishment. And even better is to add to this a punishment that fits the crime. Humanity would do well to remember that there are cosmic laws of justice. Our laws and judicial practices should never violate them. What we do in the practice of justice should make clear to everyone involved what justice really looks like. And I say this confidently to remind you that justice is not a human construct. It is from God. And when God pursues justice, it's not only what that matters to him, but also how. Who is the accused? What are they guilty of? And what is the punishment? So clear and concise is this judicial formula that it's still what we use today when pronouncing the sentence upon the guilty. Micah relied on it again and again throughout his ministry. And this morning's passage is the third in a set, structured nearly identically. A third oracle in chapter 3, each four verses, and this one a summary and a climax of the first two. We see this from the address. He says, first, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of of Israel. And then later in verse 11, we can see that he intends for these terms to cover Israel's heads, its priests, and its prophets. Three kinds of leaders, three kinds of leaders guilty before God. Now it's elsewhere in the Old Testament that we learn more about what each of these groups are responsible for. The rulers, the heads, are those who give counsel. They're the ones who make judicial rulings. They're often called sages in the Bible. The priests ruled religious life. And the prophets brought God's word to his people. Three types of ruler that God had set over his people. But as one scholar puts it, in Micah's day, all three had been corrupted by the love of money. Bribes blinded officials to justice. The size of the honoraria dictated what the priests would teach, and money diluted the visions of the prophets. That is the what they did wrong, what they were guilty of. They had sold out the people who depend on them for truth and justice. They cared more about their financial gain than anything else. At a time like this, the rulers of Israel should have been sounding the alarm because of Israel's immorality and wickedness. That's what God calls his leaders to do in people's lives. Instead of saying peace where there should be none, they're to call the alarm on wickedness. But instead, these rulers told the people peace. They encouraged the greedy They encouraged the wicked oppressors to keep doing what they're doing. They told them everything is fine. Nothing to see here. 
God had given them authority in part to help restrain sin in people's lives. That's one of the roles of leadership in the lives of God's people is to restrain sin. And instead, these leaders let it run rampant. And the theological cover they created for sin is called presumption. God is with us, therefore... God is for us. Presumption is when you believe that God is obligated to bless you no matter what you do. What these heads were practicing may look and sound like faith, but it's not faith. It's presumption. Verse 11 ends, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Do you you see the tension there? What they're saying is that their hope is in the Lord. What they're saying is that God never leaves nor forsakes his people. What they're saying is that their hope and their security is in God. And aren't those all the things you're supposed to say? Presumption can sound a lot like faith. These are the kinds of things we need to be saying in times of trouble, indeed, at all times. But there's only one way to know that our words of faith aren't concealing presumptuous hearts. Our walk must match our talk. What we do has to reveal that we actually believe what we say. There's nothing wrong with what Israel's heads were saying. What was wrong was that their professions of faith proved to be empty by their behavior. Compared to what they were saying, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Look at what they were doing. Verses 9 and 10, who detest justice, who make crooked all things straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Israel's corrupt leaders were willing to do whatever it took to get more wealth for themselves. Just as Pharaoh built Egyptian greatness on the back of slaves, so now Israel does likewise with her own people. And God had given these men various kinds of authority to exercise in the rule of his people. He gave them roles to play, participation in the rule of God's people. And instead of using that for the people's goods and for God's glory, they used it only to accumulate massive wealth for themselves. Their greed got the best of them. But to see that, you have to look past what they say and evaluate also what they do. Salvation is by faith alone, but faith never works alone. True confessions of faith will flow from the mouths of those who live lives of faith before God. Not perfect lives. We will all still battle with indwelling sin, but faithfulness nonetheless. You cannot live a godless life and still claim God's promises. That is presumption, not faith. You see, God is not actually preparing you to be precise. God is not preparing you for this life. God is preparing you for the next one, the world that is to come. You can live in a way that's prepared for this life and kind of get by. 
Others may see that facade and think that you have it all put together. But only when you are living the life of faith, the life that is prepared for the next life, will God look into you and see the faith that he requires. Think of Paul in Romans. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Think of James. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Israel's heads thought such false faith would save them. It would not. I always loved the expression of a guy named Phil Riken. He's the president of Wheaton College now, but he has the great line, God has saved you from sin, not for sin. Micah's oracles are an attempt to get through to these presumptuous leaders to break down their false sense of security. But what did they say to Micah? Is not the Lord in the midst of us? Nothing will come upon us. So deep was their presumption on God's grace that they are now hardened to the possibility of repentance. Who needs it? We're doing just fine without it. This is an important, even dire warning for us. The longer we live with discontinuity between what we say and what we do, the harder it becomes to repent. The longer we become comfortable with the conflict of what I say I believe and what I think and how I live, the less we see the need to change. And then God's patience, instead of being viewed as an act of kindness and grace from God, is all the more reason to presume. We start to believe our own false doctrine. We start to interpret events in our favor. If God was against this, he would just do something about it. Think about Israel's leader's experience with Sennacherib. That army amasses outside of their gates and then suddenly in the middle of the night, God wipes them all out. Do you think those leaders came out and said, oh, thank God for Hezekiah's repentance. Thank God for his prayer of faith. We have to turn from our wicked ways and honor God. Or do you think they went out there and said, see, Micah, I told you so. I told you no wickedness would come upon us. We are untouchable. After all, Is not the Lord in our midst? Good doctrine matters. Your confession of faith will matter on the day of God's coming. But hear me clearly. This alone will not save you. Kids, do you know the difference between medicine and a placebo? Sometimes when people are trying to figure out if a medicine works... They will take a whole bunch of people who need the medicine and they'll secretly give some of them the real medicine and some of them something that looks just like the medicine, but it's really a fake. It doesn't have any medicine in it. And that's called a placebo. If the medicine works, you see the difference in the two groups. The ones that got the real medicine will see the the effects of the medicine, whether that's a cure or reduced pain or protection from sickness. And those who got the placebo won't see any of those effects. They didn't get real medicine. They might feel like they got them. They might think they got them. But in the end, placebos don't do anything. They're empty. They're nothing. We need real medicine when we're sick. 
We also need real faith. Presumptuous faith is a placebo. It allows you to say, I have faith. It allows you to feel like you've got faith. It allows you to fool others by church attendance or spiritual talk into thinking that you have faith, but it's a placebo. It can't do what the real medicine of real faith can do. It can't show you your sin. It can't make you sorry for your sin. It can't enable you to repent of your sin. And it can't equip you to live a life that's set apart from sin. It is fake. The problem for Israel's leaders is not what they were saying. It's the disconnect between what they were saying and the effect it was having on their lives. Instead of trusting God's grace, they were presuming on his presence. James 2, you believe that God is one, you do well. That's good doctrine. God is one. And even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works. His faith was completed by his works. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We don't need a placebo. We need real faith. Now, just as the scope of the audience in this third oracle has expanded to now include all of Israel's types of rulers, so the punishment has also expanded in severity. Remember, in the first oracle of this chapter, God's punishment is silence. He will not speak. And in the second, he brings darkness. But in this one, he takes away his presence completely. Verse 12, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall be, become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Instead of seeing God as a powerful and gracious sovereign to whom we give our lives in loving devotion, presumptuous faith sees God as little more than a good luck charm, a lucky rabbit's foot. A horseshoe, your your lucky shirt. You've seen this in people's lives. Some object to which they've assigned mystical power that controls the outcomes of their lives. Presumptuous faith treats God no differently. These rulers of Israel don't believe that Israel is safe because of God's covenant. They believe Israel is safe because of God's presence. And how do they know God is with them? Well, look over there. It's the temple. God's temple. As long as God is with us, as long as God's temple is with us, nothing will come upon us. We'll be just fine. This isn't the first time in Israel's history that they confused God's saving power with a physical object and decided to love the object more than God. Of course, that's the story of the golden calf, but it's also the story of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember those stories that Israel would march into battle confident that God is going to give them the victory, not because he's a faithful covenant keeping God, but because they had the Ark of the Covenant in the battle with them. What the Ark was supposed to be was a sign of God's presence, a reminder of God's covenant with them. 
The purpose of those reminders is to turn the people's hearts toward God. People today do this with the sacraments. As if there's something more magical about the bread and the wine than about the word that is preached. As if somehow by simply possessing these elements that they can transform us inwardly. They take what God has made holy and they use it for the placebo effect of presumptuous faith. There is great power not in these elements, but in these elements by faith. There's great power in God as he works through these elements and the preaching of the word and all of his means of grace. But no, the ark for them had become a a lucky charm. The ark, the temple, these objects that are supposed to remind God's people of their need to honor God instead became just allegiance to those objects. As long as they had the ark, they figured we will never lose a battle. And instead of practicing covenant faithfulness and hoping in God's grace for the victory, they practiced lucky charmsism where they just hold out the ark and presume that God is obligated to give them the victory. And you know how that ended. They march into battle, and not only are they defeated, but the ark is taken away forever. Fast forward, and here we are again. Now it's the temple. The temple is the physical token of God's presence. It's the new ark. And God's people are not relying on the faithfulness of God toward his faithful people, they are presuming on God's protection simply because the temple is here. No matter what we do, God will come through for us. We have his temple. So when Micah comes along and warns them and calls them to repentance, they do what presumptuous faith always does. They roll their eyes and say, It'll never happen to me. Is God not with us? We go to church every Sabbath. We'll be just fine. The punishment section of this oracle has some interesting details. But to understand them, you first got to understand a few things about how Micah's audience understood physical space. Professor Bruce Waltke had the best summary of this that I could find, so I'm going to read you his rather than just garbling the words myself. Space, physical space, in the Old Testament was divided into degrees of holiness. At the lowest level was the holy land itself. In contrast to the pagan lands, the holy land was more holy. And then within the holy land... The forest was unholy because that's where the deadly and unclean wildlife ruled. And the tilled land from which you grew crops, the source of life, was more holy than that. And then the city of Jerusalem, where God lived, was more holy than even the tilled lands. And at the summit of the city, symbolically, was Mount Zion, closest to God, because it's highest up. And so symbolically, most Holy, And on top of that holy hill stood God's holy temple, even more holy. And then the temple consisted of a series of courts representing even further gradations of holiness, more and more holy as you get inside. 
Until most holy, finally, this place that only the high priest could enter, and then only once a year, and then only with atoning blood, and that was the most holy physical space of all. You with me? All right, now look at the language that Micah uses to describe the judgment in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. What is the punishment? Waltke concludes, when the Holy One forsook his temple, he reduced it to a pagan shrine in an unholy forest. He will take their holiest of holies upon which they presume and he will make it as unclean as a literal pagan shrine in an evil forest. And that's what would actually happen when it was destroyed. It's not unlike beautiful church buildings. Majestic structures all throughout the world where leaders long ago abandoned faithful teaching, preaching, and practicing of God's word. And little by little, their congregations dwindled until eventually they could no longer support the building's debt or upkeep. And those magnificent churches were sold to museums and to mosques. Israel's temple on the Holy Mount was the epicenter. It was the clearest representation of God's presence with Israel. They were not wrong about that. But they were wrong to presume that God would be with them when real faith was not. People who presume upon God by saying they believe Yet living apart from his commands will always find that God is not with them. Repentance and obedience, on the other hand, these are your proof that God is with you. Everything else is presumption. It's not because salvation is by works and the works are repentance and obedience. No, it's because the faith that God gives always provides the power for repentance and obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How, Lord? (laughs) And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor, nor, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And will be in you. The spirit of God at work in your life. In repentance and in obedience. Is God's proof that your faith is real. But if you say you have faith. And the spirit is not at work in your life. Your faith will not save. If you rely on the Spirit of God, you will never be disappointed. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You will be right to say exactly what these rulers said. Is God not with me? You can be confident in the Spirit that your faith is real. But if you rely on buildings and arcs, on church membership or baptism on your family name or reputation, you are unsafe. For it is never safe to presume. Israel's leaders presumed. And God sends this 
awful judgments upon them. They think that the events with Sennacherib proved their invincibility. But faith looks at those same results and knows that it only proves God's patience. Jerusalem and its temple will fall because placebos don't work. Verse 12 says, therefore, because of you. Why does this happen? Why does a good and loving God bring such devastation upon people? Because of you. Their presumption, their faithful words marred by evil practices are what bring Israel's downfall. What you say matters, but what brings judgment and destruction on a life or a family or a church is not just what we say, it's the continuity or lack between what we say and what we do. We are all at great risk of compartmentalization, of saying that we honor God and of choosing 60 or 70 or 80% of our lives within which we will honor God and yet holding back a percentage for ourselves. I'll give God all of this and only dabble in lust. I'll give God only this, but I'm, I'm going to keep my covetousness. That is what brings God's judgment. Now, there is, of course, another possible outcome. Judgment comes against the spiritual presumption of Israel's rulers, but there is an alternative. And you've got to look carefully at this because the alternative is not in the text. I hope that makes you nervous whenever the preacher says that what I'm about to say is not in the text. It's not in the text because the alternative is the text. Micah's oracle, Micah's preaching is God's act of grace toward his people. It is the alternative that they would listen to the preaching, that they would take this opportunity to respond in faith and repentance, that instead of saying, I'm doing just fine, they would lay down their pride for a moment and hear that perhaps God is trying to use the priest's word to pierce their heart like a dagger, not their neighbor's hearts, not their husband's hearts, not their children's hearts, but their hearts like a dagger. That's the alternative. That God, in the preaching of his word, would take hold of your heart and draw you in repentance. Spiritual presumption relies on God's patience. It always says, I've got more time. I can care about God later. I'll say the right things now. I'll get around to doing them and believing them later. I'll give God this much of my time or my money or my life, but not all of it, not yet. God is patient, but he will not suffer unbelief forever. It is a great error. It is the height of spiritual presumption to say, I know God is true, but I've got plenty of time. It's a great error because Jesus is coming. Whatever else the weekly sermon does, 
it should always sound the alarm against spiritual presumption. From every single text of Scripture, God is calling his people to bring their whole lives under the authority of his word. Not parts of our lives. Not sprinkling some God talk over here and some church attendance over there and then hold other areas back until we're ready. God calls us through every part of his word to submit ourselves to every part of his word. To respond to his word, to what Micah does here, to respond to that word with life-encompassing faith. Not just words, but faith. Not just placebos, but real medicine. Christian, respond to God with all that you are. That's what Hezekiah did at Micah's preaching. Rather than roll his eyes and say, you're not talking about me, he let God's word pierce him through the heart until he said, I am undone. It is about me and my sin. Give God your mouths, yes. Confess your faith. Confess God's truth. And give God your hands and your feet. Obeying his commandments. Loving others as he loves us. That's what Jesus said faith does. And give God your heart. That means want the things that God wants. Justice and kindness and humility, not personal gain. Love the things that God loves. So tell the world what you believe, but don't just tell them. Show them, because it is never safe to presume. Let's pray.